normally, by the end of May each year, uh, I try to have the messages for the next ministry year. So by the end of May, I try to have sort of September through August planned out. Now, the reason I'm drawing your attention to that, why I'm telling you about that, is because starting today, we're going to be today through the month of January, we're going to be doing a series on the book of Haggai, which talks about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Now, since we're kind of in this, hey, flood thing and dealing with rebuilding the building, I want to make it really clear, before the flood, we were going to do this series. We're not doing this because, well, hey, there's rebuilding the temple. We're rebuilding our worship center. Hey, that'll work. That'll preach. That's not why we're doing this. You might say, well, why are we doing this then? Well, last spring as I was praying and pondering, you know, Lord, what what do you want us as a church to, to look at? What do you want to put in front of us over the next year kind of a thing? It seemed like repeatedly God kept putting this little book, this short, second shortest book, in the Old Testament, in front of our faces, in essence, because as I prayed, my big concern is I was praying, Lord, what needs to happen in terms of us rebooting? In terms of us spiritually rebooting, what needs to take place? And He seemed to keep bringing us here. Now, in some ways, maybe why He brought us here is because though Haggai is going to talk a lot about rebuilding the temple, The reason he really talked about rebuilding the temple was because they needed to deal with some things first. There was some rebooting spiritually that needed to take place in their lives so it could be rebuilt. Okay, The building wasn't going to happen unless some things took place in them spiritually. And maybe in a similar way, there's some things that God needs to put in front of us some things that need to happen in our hearts, in our souls, some sort of spiritual rebooting in terms of maybe we need to just stop and consider what Jesus calls the greatest commandment in Matthew 22 when he says we are to love God. Maybe we just need to stop there and say what needs to happen in my life so I truly am loving God, this one who is amazing and awesome and beyond all, what needs to take place in my life? And so as we go through the month of January, we go through the 31 days of prayer, and I'd encourage you, as Brad said, to grab one of the the devotionals. I want to ask you to be praying for yourself, for us collectively, that God is going to do some significant rebooting in our souls. Now, if we're going to understand the book of Haggai, if we're going to get there, there's some things I think we need to understand about the scene of Haggai. And also some things, if God's going to do a work in our lives to make sure we understand how we need to apply it to our lives. And so to do that, we're going to get to Haggai, but there's sort of sort of three sort of housekeeping things, sort of setting the scene things we need to do. The first is I probably need to tell you how to find the book of Haggai. Okay, And it's really, if you don't want to use the table of contents in your Bible, which is legitimate to use, it's there for a reason, but if you want to look more sophisticated and cool, what you need to do is take your Bible and open it to the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and then turn left three books. Okay, So you get to Malachi, which is five chapters, Zechariah, which is 14, and then Haggai, which is two. If you get to the book of Zephaniah, you've gone too far. Okay, I also, this is a free aside at this moment, I'd really like to challenge you in 2017, I realize you probably have electronic Bibles, I'm not picking on you right now, you just happen to be in my website, I'm good to bring an electronic Bible, but can I ask you and encourage you to bring a paper Bible? There's some great value in 
being in the Bible, I think. Not be, just, I think so. I told the first service, if you don't do it, God's going to convict you, and that's all good and fine. That was my attempt to see if they were still awake, you know. But we want to ask you to just, just to bring it. Now, that's, that's part of setting the scene. The other setting of the scene is if we're going to make sure how we understand that we take the message of Haggai and apply it in our lives, we probably need to figure out where does this fit into the story of life, into the story of the Bible. So what I want to do very quickly, I realize it's January 1st. You may not have slept as much as you should have last night, but I want to give you a really quick history lesson. Okay, I want to give you some hooks to hang some things on. Because what God wants to say to the people of Haggai wasn't a new message. It's really something he'd been saying for 500 years and they weren't getting it. Okay, so let's go through some history really quick. 1050 B.C., we won't go all the way to the beginning, but 1050 B.C. is when Saul was anointed king by Samuel. You kind of read about his being king in 1 Samuel. Okay. Next date I want you to keep in mind is 1010 B.C. In 1010 B.C., that is when David was already on the scene, but in 1010 B.C., David becomes king. Okay, we realize there was a typo. It should be 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. That's kind of David's reign. That's kind of where the stories of David as the king are there. The next date I want you to know is 970 B.C. because it's in 970 B.C. when David's son Solomon builds the temple, the first temple. Okay, and you can read about the building of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 5 to 8 and also in 2 Chronicles chapter 2 to chapter 6. Now, I want you to go back with me in time a little bit. I want you to go back to September the 11th, the last Sunday we were at North High School as a part of our pilgrimage. And that Sunday we started the Greater Than series. And as we started the Greater Than series, we talked about Solomon. And one of the things we learned about Solomon in the Greater Than series was that Solomon allowed things other than God to be ultimate in his life. And he let them to be ultimate in his life to the degree that he literally walked away from God. And in walking away from God, in kind of... God said, this is so serious. I'm going to take the people that were one nation. This sin is so serious. I'm going to rip the nation in half. Okay, so in 931, the next day to remember, when Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king, the nation is divided. You can read the story in 1 Kings chapter 12. These people that were God's people, all of a sudden ripped apart. Now you would think, you would think, these are God's people and they were supposed to be in covenant with Him and they were in covenant with each other. You would have thought that might have been a wake-up call to say, hey, there's a problem here. Shape up. Well, the problem is spiritually things for the people just kept getting worse. And when I mean they got worse spiritually, if you want to sort of put it in your head to quantify it, when you say worse, how worse could it be? Well, some of the things that the kings began to do is they barbecued their kids. Now, I didn't say they didn't have a barbecue with their kids. They literally took their kids and sacrificed them to another god. Okay, this is how bad it was getting. So in 722 B.C., God said, okay, we're going to deal with some things. We're going to take more steps to get these people's attention. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians take Israel, which would be the northern tribes, 
Okay, Israel gets used a lot of different ways. In this time period, Israel is referring to the northern tribes. They're taken into exile. You can read the story in 2 Kings 17. Now, you would have thought for the southern tribes, for the tribe of Judah, that would have been a wake-up call. Wow, look what God just did. They're no longer in the promised land, the land we were supposed to be in. Man, we better kind of get with the program. Well, they got with the program, but the program they got with was the same one Israel was on. They kept going, descending deeper and deeper into spiritual crud to the point that in 586 B.C., God had the Babylonians take Judah into exile. You can read the story in 2 Kings 25. In the process, though, of the Babylonians doing that, the, the temple, this incredible building that had been built to declare the name of God, was destroyed. And everything in it was gone. The Babylonians took it. In 539 B.C., another date for you, in 539 B.C., the Persians and the Medes, you can read about this in Daniel 5, took over the Babylonians. And that was a huge change. Part of the reason there was a huge change is when that took place, the Persian king, a guy named Cyrus, who had been prophesied 150-ish years earlier by Isaiah, and Isaiah 54 is now on the scene. And he says to the people, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to build the temple. To the degree, actually, that in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2, Cyrus declares that God charged him to build the temple. That God said, you need to do this. So Cyrus sends the people back. And in 538 B.C., about 50,000 people walk a route of about 900 miles. Okay, so 50,000 of them go back. And by 536 B.C., they've got the foundation of the temple laid. They are making progress. And then it stops. There's persecution, there's opposition, and so the rebuilding process comes to a grinding halt. Nothing takes place. There's tension within the Persian Empire a little bit, and Cyrus dies, his son's to take over, his son doesn't do very well. And in 522 B.C., a guy named Darius becomes the king of Persia. He was most likely the king who was a part of taking out the Babylonians, so he's been around a while. But he becomes king. And that brings us to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. We'll just read the verse quickly and then kind of deal with one more housekeeping thing. But verse 1 says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Shealtiel. We're, going to have to, we're all going to learn to say that together governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Real quickly, what I want you to say is he is telling us in very specific terms exactly when he got this message. And if you were to take that information and turn it into our calendar, you would come up with the date of August the 29th, 520 B.C. Okay, a lot of times we don't know when things were written. We know to the day when this was written. He got this message. Now what we need to understand to kind of get some of the context is here are these people, they'd been through a lot. They knew this enormous history and now after they some of them were coming back to the promised land. Okay, Some of them were new, they were being born, but they're now back in the promised land. And you think if you were a Jewish person, you're now back in the promised land. You're in the place God said, it's for you. Everything would be great. You're back where you should be. 
We're back in there. It's going to be great. It's not necessarily how it works out. See, we need to understand an important truth. Just because you are in the preferred geographic location doesn't mean things will be good. You see, the real issue going on in the lives of the people that came back wasn't about geography. It was about their hearts. It was about their souls. There was rebooting that needed to take place in their lives. Desperately needed to take place. And that's where the book of Haggai wants to go. If the temple was going to be rebuilt, something needed to happen inside them. Now a key question maybe to consider at this point is if there were heart and soul issues, if what needed before the temple could be rebuilt, there were heart and soul issues, if spiritual rebooting really is the issue behind the book of Haggai, why does Haggai talk about rebuilding the temple? Related concern. We're going to get to that question, but maybe just a related concern. It would be very easy for us as a church right now to think that the thing we need to focus on, the thing we need to be most concerned about should be our building and, and should be getting the worship center rebuilt. I mean, we don't need five lifts in there right now. We, we need to get the building built. We need to get pews and chairs and carpet. That's what our concern should be. And folks, I don't disagree. We need to be attentive to those things. Okay? We need to be good stewards of what God has enormously blessed us with. But I honestly believe the bigger issue for the people of Haggai and the bigger issue for us isn't the condition of a building. It is the condition of our hearts. It is the condition of our souls. The bigger issue, I think, is are we really having a reviving in our lives for our love for God? Is our love for God growing? That's the bigger issue. Now, why the temple, though? If that real issue is their love for God and their hearts and their souls, why the temple? Well, if you and I were to climb in to have a conversation with Haggai and say, Haggai, why do you keep talking about the temple? I think part of what he would say was, is, hey, if you read Second Chronicles chapter 6, specifically you read the prayer, and it's a, the whole chapter is a prayer, but if you look at verses 5 to 9, you'll get verse 20, you'll look at verse 26, you'll look at verse 33 and 34, and you'll look at verse 38, you'll notice something. You will notice that the temple itself is tied to God's name. In essence, when the temple is referred to, it's also communicating things about God, about God's name, about God's character. So much so that at the time of Haggai, Whatever you thought of the temple was the same of what you thought of God. The two were so intertwined, what you thought of one was the other. Which meant if you were honoring the temple, you were honoring God's name. You were honoring God's character. You were honoring God. But it also means if you were dishonoring the temple, you're dishonoring God. That's why the temple's an issue. Now, with the history, the timeline in place, we found the book. We know what the temple is. Let's jump in. What is God's message to Haggai? What is the message God wants communicated? So let's read verse 1 again just to remind us just so I can mispronounce names again. 
Okay? So in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, when the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, we've already mentioned the date. What I want you to notice more in this verse, though, is the expression, by the hand, the word of the Lord came by the hand of. Okay, that expression is really a huge declaration that Haggai didn't make up the message. The, the word picture, the message came by the hand of, is as if God had written a message on a scroll, handed it to Haggai and said, you've got to read this. Maybe to put it in our terms, it would be like God forwarded, God sent an email to Haggai. Or maybe it's a Facebook instant message, maybe it's a Snapchat, maybe it's an Instagram. He sent it and said, you need to share this with everybody. This needs to get out. My message needs to be heard by everybody. Now, real quick aside, real quick aside, one of our core values as a church is we say we trust the Bible. And I want to underline the reason we say we trust the Bible isn't because it's a cool book. You know, it might come with a leather cover or fake leather. It's probably fake leather because I'm cheap. But, you know, that kind of a thing. It's not because of that. The reason we trust the Bible is because the Bible is God's words to us. It's God's message. We trust the Bible because it comes from God. Okay, and we need to understand that. We trust it because of who the source is. So this source, this one, has a message to get off the aside and back to Hebrew or back to Haggai chapter one. What's the message? What is it that God wants communicated? Well, verse two is kind of the message starts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, we can't hear God say those words. But by the way they're recorded, the, the, the phraseology used, you kind of get the sense God said this with a tone of voice. Okay, look at the words, these people. Okay, that's not exactly a warm, fuzzy way for God to be referring to His covenant people. Okay, none of my family is here. They were all here in the first service. So I can't incriminate, actually I don't want to incriminate anyone because you'll go tell them who I incriminated. So I don't want to do that. So we're going to be hypothetical here. Okay? Just suppose to give you the sense of the tone of voice that's being used, one parent has been at home all day with the kids. And it has been one of those days. Parent number two comes home. They walk in the door and parent number one says those words, Do you know what your son and daughter did today? How many of you have said those words? How many of you have been the reason those words were said? What do you know the moment those words are said like that? We've got a problem. A big problem. A major relational problem. In simple terms, what's the problem? Well, the problem is these people didn't think it was time to finish rebuilding the temple. I mean, it had only been 16 years. Why be in a hurry? Right? I mean, the soil's got to compact. 
You know, if you're going to build a big building, you want to make sure that soil is compacted. I mean, why would God be upset? Look around the room. I know some of your stories. Some of you, I don't know your story. Some of you, I don't even know if I know. But I'm going to guess somebody in this room, God's made you wait. Maybe you're waiting right now. And it's kind of like, well, if God can make me wait, why can't I make God wait? Kind of seems fair, doesn't it? I mean, that's kind of, I think, the mindset they have. We're just not in a hurry. Why is God upset about that? Look at verse 3 and verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Sounds very much like verse 1, doesn't it? Is it... Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Okay, God's got a message. Verse 1 and verse 3 are telling us that. Verse 4, God asks a rhetorical question to start really getting to the heart of the issue. And the way he asks the question, he is assuming, he is basically going to require them to give an answer, the expected answer to the question. And the expected answer is no. It's not time for God's house to be in ruins and for us to be living in our comfort. I want you to notice two things in verse 4. I want you to notice first the phrase, you yourselves. By using that expression, you yourselves, that's kind of a hint. It's kind of drawing attention to what these people were interested in, what they really thought was sort of priority and what they thought was important in life. Sort of their true priority in life was themselves. They were focused on themselves. That's important for us to notice. The second thing, the idea of paneled houses is that these self-focused people were kind of majoring on their own comfort. And, and the use of paneled houses, even though some of these people probably didn't have the financial means to have paneled houses, their focus was on, I want to be comfortable. I want my settings. I want my stuff to be lavish. I want it all. I want to have it there. There's a sense in which the essence of verse 4, what God's really trying to do, what God's doing is He's asking them to ask themselves, what is most important to you? What really do you think is the most important thing? To, to turn it into the words that we would use at Central in terms of our core values, there's a sense in which God is asking them, do you love me? Do you love me? God, am I important to you? Am I a priority to you? I mean, if they've been putting off finishing the temple for 16 years, they've put off finishing God's house where God's name and character are tied to, do they really want God around? I mean, if they give no priority to the temple, the temple's really a non-issue, then it's tied to God's name, then is God a non-issue? Is God somebody that, well, I'll get around to God being a part of my life, but it's just not convenient right now. It's not time yet. I mean, they seem to be operating as if God's not essential to life. They, God might be a nice add-on. You know, He might be, yeah, you know, I, I want a little 
something extra on my hamburger. What's going on here? Is God a priority? Now the words of verse 4 to me seem to have a bite. And they seem to suggest that, that God might want something. That God doesn't want things to stay where they are. You say, well, what does God want? Well, when God's asking the questions in verse 4, He seems to be pointing them towards doing some things. What does God want them to do? Well, step number one, I think what God wants them to do is He wants them to take a good look in the mirror. Verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I think God is saying to the people, you need to take a very deep, penetrating, soul-level kind of look at your life. In some ways, what he's doing is if we go back to the idea of verse 2, they maybe had reasons why they shouldn't rebuild the temple yet. In essence, verse 5, I think God's challenging them. Okay, lay out your reasons. Lay out your excuses for not doing it. And let's compare that. Let's consider that against the truth of God. And I think God would say, if you lay this out, you're going to see there is a problem. Why do I say that? Look at verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. To get them started looking in the mirror, to get them started on really considering their lives, God says, hey, what you're doing isn't working. In essence, what He is doing in Haggai chapter 1, verse 6 is getting them to go back to Deuteronomy 28. The people of Haggai were people under the Mosaic covenant. They were under this covenant with God that was formed through Moses. And in Deuteronomy 28, as a part of that covenant, the people were told, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I am going to take action. Okay, you could call that action cursing. You could call that action punishment. You could call that action God trying to do corrective work in their lives to get them where they need to be. He's moving in their lives to get them there. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And by repeating the message of verse 5 and verse 7, I think God's kind of saying, it's not just about looking in the mirror. There's another step I want you to take. We need to understand, folks, in considering our ways, you and I may face some things that are not very comfortable. If we are to take our lives and lay out our reasons why we're living the way we are and we compare that to God's truth, we might realize there's a problem. That's not pleasant. That's not easy. That's not simple. But if God's asking us, maybe that's the best thing we can do. So God says, look in the mirror. That's first step. Second step He seems to be leading them to would be to confess and repent of sin. He's leading them to deal with the sin in their lives. Now the words confess and repent, I'll be very clear, are, you're not going to find those words in Haggai. But what I think is happening, sort of the thrust of the message of verses 4 through 7, is to bring them to this place of, hey, they've not been treating God as a priority. God is not the priority of their lives, and God is drawing attention to that. If God is not the priority in our lives, we're sinning. 
We're violating the first commandment. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, Deuteronomy 5.7 tells us. They were doing that. They made themselves gods above God. He, they, were, they were viewing themselves as greater than God. There's an issue. They put themselves above the Lord of hosts. So what God seems to be doing is having them now look in the mirror, kind of see themselves, and in seeing who they are in light of God's truth, realize there's a problem here. God was moving to bring conviction in their lives, and He was bringing them conviction so they deal with issues. And part of the conviction issue, why He's doing is to bring them to the point where they'd confess. Now, confession literally means say the same thing. God's moving them to the place where they would say the same thing about sin as God was. That's sort of step 2A. But just saying the same thing about sin isn't really all that God has for them. God wants more for that, and so really He's going to then move them to repent. Because repent is about changing direction. It's about turning from sin to God. It's not just saying, wow, sin's really bad. It's about, I want to move away from sin, and I want to move towards God. I want to do the things of God, and He's leading us there. The reason I say He's leading us there is because when we look at verse 8, verse 8 is going to say, total change of direction. God says, let's do something different. So verse 8, what does verse 8 tell us? It says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God is saying, confess and repent, get rid of the sin, deal with it, and now live in this direction. Live for me, live for my priorities, not your own. In essence, he's saying, live for the glory of God. Verse 8 really is an invitation to you and me to adjust our lives. To say to these people, these people, folks, don't live for your own reputations. Don't live for your own comfort. Live for God's reputation. Let God be the priority, the essential priority He truly is. Now to pull back just for a second, kind of a big picture view of things. I think a noted part of what God was trying to communicate through Haggai to the people was if you ignore God or you you view God as someone you fit into your life when it's convenient, when you think the time is right, God was wanting them to understand if that's how we live, life's not going to be what you thought it would be. God is essential to life. And we need him. And we need to live in a way that God truly is our priority. Now there's something odd in one sense about the first 11 verses of Haggai. Verse 3 repeats verse 1. Verse 7 repeats verse 5. To kind of like to get people, to really get the point. Well, verses 9 through 11 are going to repeat basically verse 6. Let's read verses 9 to 11 just to see that. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Well, because my house that lies in ruins, well, each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth withheld its produce. 
And I have called for a drought on the land and on and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Okay, Because of their disobedience, because of their ill treatment of God, God's taking things from them. Say, why? Why is God doing that? I mean, is God being mean? No. God's being faithful. Back in Exodus, God entered into a covenant we call the Mosaic Covenant with the people of Israel. The covenant was renewed in Deuteronomy. And in that covenant, there was a connection and a relationship. And that covenant put obligations on the people and on God. Part of the obligation on God was if the people strayed from the covenant, He must take action. And His action was He had to deal with their sin. He had to confront them. He had to bring it to their attention. What God is doing here in Haggai is, believe it or not, how many of you like singing Great is Thy Faithfulness? That is exactly what God was doing. He was being faithful. He wasn't going to let the people miss out on what they truly desired. You see, folks, God wants every one of us to know good. He wants our lives to be marinated, lived in His good. But the only way you and I can live in His good is if God truly is the priority. He must be that. Haggai has said some strong words to these people. And he's going to say some more strong words as the book unfolds, but this is probably the strongest. But you and I might ask the question, what does a message like this have to do with us? I mean, the people that were being talked about lived under the covenant of Moses before Jesus. We live after Jesus. We're not under the covenant of Moses. Crying out loud, this message was delivered 2,537 years ago. It was focused on a temple, and we don't have a temple. Okay, Our worship center is not the replacement for the temple. In fact, biblically, if there's a temple today, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, the temple is the collective people of God. Okay, so followers of Christ, if you've turned from sin to God and trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior... Somehow, all of the people that have done that, all of us that have done that, we are the temple. Not a building. It's us. And in Revelation 21, 22, we are told that in the new Jerusalem, the temple will be God Himself. So, what does this have to do with us? How does this connect? Really quickly, let me offer you three applications that I think, even though there's some differences between us and the people of Haggai, these apply to us. This message connects here. Application number one would be this. I think you and I, and this is really rocket science, you're going to be blown away by this. Consider your ways. I think we need to do that. I think as we start 2017, we should kind of lay out our lives Kind of look in the mirror, lay out our lives and look at where we're at and where God's truth is and see where are we at there. We maybe need to ask some penetrating questions like, what truly is ultimate in my life? What is my top priority? Maybe we need to ask very soberly, am I a follower of the Lord Jesus? 
In the words of John 3, have I been born again? I mean, do I really know the Lord Jesus is my Savior? Or do I just know things about Him? Maybe I need to ask, where does my love for God need to grow? I don't think those are inconsequential. I think those are huge questions we need to ask. Second application, I think, would be we need to submit to the Lord. I've heard the expression, and it really is starting to bug me. The expression, like herding cats. And when I hear people say that, sometimes they say it with pride. You know, working with us is like herding cats. Folks, can I ask you a question? Are we comfortable being stubbornly independent? Haggai is 38 verses. In those 38 verses, 14 times the expression, the Lord of hosts, is used. It's the Lord of hosts who's speaking. The Lord of hosts is the way the Bible uses to express that the Lord is the Lord Almighty who's a warrior. Which means He will fight for us, or if we rebel, He will fight against us. Are there areas in your life where you, for me, we are not, Jesus is not our functional Lord? We might say He is, but blow that away. Are we submitting to the Lord? Third application. Express the priority of God in our lives. We need to find ways that I live so I'm expressing the priority of God. For them, it was building the temple. For us, it's not building the worship center. Okay? For us, expressing the priority of God might be, because the Bible tells us, it might be that when we receive income, the first thing we do is give. It may be that. Maybe because the temple is the collective people of God. Maybe part of expressing the priority of God in my life is I express priority to being with the people of God. Maybe it's, you know what, prayer is my first response, not a last resort. It could be other things, but it's got to be there somewhere. I've got to express the priority of God in my life and not just blow it away, not make it convenient. You know, as we begin 2017, I think we have a great opportunity to learn through Haggai how to reboot our lives so that we truly grow to love God more, so that we begin to live our lives in a way that God truly is the essential priority we need Him to be. God's not an afterthought. He's not someone we'll fit in when it's convenient or when the time is right. Down in our office, we have an old clock that the church was given in 1902, and so the writing on it is in uh, Swedish. And the, what the words mean is, now is the appointed time. Maybe 2017 is the appointed time for you and I to truly make God the priority so that we truly live the way life was intended to be. That we bow the knee to Him. That we say, You are the ultimate. Now's the time. Let's pray.